0: Good morning, everyone. Uh, I hope you're all doing well today. Uh, My name is David. I'm an elder here at Renaissance, and uh, let's open up with a brief word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful to come together today, to be able to sing your praises, to hear your word, to fellowship with one another. Father, I pray that today we would glorify you and honor you in all we do, that you would uh, calm my mind. work through these words that you be preparing our hearts to hear your word and to honor you in it. In Jesus and I pray. Amen. So today we start a new series called Healthy Church. Oh, very nice. All right. So having just completed our sermon series going through the book of James, we've got a few weeks until Easter and so we thought this would be a good time to go through a few uh important facets of building a healthy church. So there'll be this week on church membership and at the end we'll induct a few new members. Next week, we'll talk about biblical church leadership, and the week after that will be church planting and missions. Now, of course, these are not the only things that are part of a healthy church. Um, No one is saying that they're the only things. In fact, we could spend probably more weeks on some of this, but these are a few of the basics. Our sermon text today will be Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. Um, It's a text that we often read in our members' gatherings, and it's an important look at how the early church uh, behaved together. But the sermon will look a little bit differently. After walking through the passage, I'll look at a few just generic basics of church membership that we see in the New Testament. Now, of course, before I begin, I want to give a bit of a disclaimer. There's no text in the Bible that says, Thou shalt become a member of a local church. And in our very individualistic culture, a lot of people, that's enough to say, Well, good, no thanks. When you add to that the reality of shepherds who have hurt or abused the sheep... And the difficulties that can come with church life, church membership, can often be a tough sell. However, I hope to show today that first, early Christians in the New Testament, to them, joining a church was just a healthy outgrowth of healthy Christian life. They didn't need to be convinced, they just joined with a local body. And secondly, church membership is different from some exclusive club like a Costco membership or something like that with special perks. It's a mutual commitment both from a member to a church— and from the church to that member it goes both ways. In short, Christian, the local church needs you, and you need the church. Before diving into Acts chapter two verses 42 to 47, let's look at a little bit of background. Acts chapter two, if you're not familiar, is uh, the story of Pentecost, right? Pentecost uh, was a feast that would happen after Passover, and many Jewish people traveled from afar to be there. Acts chapter two verse five says, that now they were dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at that time, the Holy Spirit came upon them. Jesus had promised that the Holy Spirit would come, and in Acts chapter 2, it did. And then Peter preached. He tells them of Christ's resurrection and the Holy Spirit. And verse 41 says this. So those who received his word, in other words, Peter's preaching, they were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. So, when they believed, they were baptized. It's a biblical pattern upon belief. One makes it public through baptism. And the natural step after belief in Christ is to be publicly baptized. Then, 3,000 souls were added to their number. So, things might have been getting a little crowded. Things looked very differently from, you know, when it was just Jesus and there were 12 disciples and maybe a few followers. 3,000 devoted followers is a lot of people. If we imagine 3,000 people showing up next week, Professing faith and joining our assembly, that would be awesome. That would be a very good thing. Uh, but things would look a little bit differently. We might need a little bit more coffee, a few more chairs, and some more space. So what did the early church do when 3,000 people joined their number? Did they go out and buy a bigger space, get a bigger room, brew more coffee, hire a media coordinator? No, let's read Acts 2:42. It says, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship To the breaking of bread and the prayers. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship and to prayer. It's a beautiful summary of what our gatherings should look like. The apostles' teaching would have been uh, the teaching of Christ's disciples, right? What we look at as the scriptures. When Peter got up to preach earlier in Acts chapter 2, he didn't just kind of say whatever he was feeling in the moment. No, he went back to the Old Testament. He quoted Joel, a prophecy of Joel that said the Holy Spirit would be poured out He quoted David in the Psalms. The point is, the apostles' teaching was rooted in God's revelation of the Old Testament, which was connected to his revelation in the New Testament. Obviously, the New Testament hadn't been written yet, because that's what we have recorded. So how do we model this in our church? Well, we remain devoted to the Scriptures. We don't just do whatever or take whatever people say at face value, but we test things inside and outside the church by the standard of the Scriptures. We too must be committed to the apostles' teaching. But I think we also intuitively recognize, right, that we need other people. If you just go to a nice, isolated place, live there by yourself with your Bible, that sounds maybe really nice, but we don't have that option, do we? We're living in a broken world, and we need encouragement from other people. I'll speak more on this in a little bit, but I want to say now, the Christian life is not meant to be lived alone. As much as we might not want to admit it, we need the encouragement of others, there are many places in Scripture that tell us to do blank to one another, encourage one another, pray for one another. Again, I'll talk about that more in a minute, but how do we do those things if there are no another's who we're spending time with? If you isolate yourself and decide to walk the Christian life alone, don't be surprised when you spiritually dry up. These believers were breaking bread together. They ate meals together. They spent time in each other's lives. You've heard us say things here like, share a meal with someone, or we want to get coffee with you. And it may sound rote or cliche, but the reality is, we all know when you share a meal with someone, when you sit across the table from them, there's a different kind of encouragement, a different kind of intimacy that that brings. I can stand up here and proclaim God's word to you, and hopefully that works encouragement and conviction in your life. It should. But so often we can also receive encouragement and conviction when sitting over a meal with someone when being close to them and hearing their story, hearing about their life, hearing how God is working in their hearts. In fellowship, we allow the, God, the work God is doing in each of our individual hearts to be manifested together and spur us on to growth. Fellowship was essential to the early church and it's essential for us today. And finally, they devoted themselves to prayer. This is and always has been characteristic of God's people. In the same way that fellowship encourages us and makes us realize we aren't alone, prayer connects us to the one who is in control. It demonstrates our dependence upon God. It's not just making a wish list and hoping God grants all our wishes. It's us saying that we need him. We are dependent upon him, both individually and corporately. I'm reminded of the the main point from last week, right? If you blank, then pray. There isn't a situation in which we can say, well, I don't really need to pray in this situation. Your prayer might be a prayer of thanksgiving, of lament, of praise. There are endless circumstances in which we should be people of prayer, both individually and together. I've mentioned already and probably will again that we live in a quite individualistic culture. Many aspects of church life buck against that. But nothing bucks against the idea that I can do it all on my own quite like prayer. In prayer, we say I can't do it all on my own. I need God's help. I need God to work in me. And when we as a church pray, we say, we need God to work in us. We must depend on the Lord, and we demonstrate that through lives of prayer. So these three things were foundational. When 3,000 people were added to their number, their church did not go and buy more coffee, get more chairs, you know, get a couple uh, new sound techs, right? They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, fellowship, and prayer. So I'd encourage us to be about those things. I do think it's worth noting before moving on from this that the church did indeed eventually address those sort of operational, logistical needs. Those didn't just uh, fall away. If you're sitting here today and thinking, well, I help with set up and tear down, or I get coffee, is that unimportant? No, that's not unimportant. Please don't hear me say that. In Acts chapter 6, there's a problem with the church regarding food distribution. And in that passage, we typically see that as sort of what we call the first deacons, but the church devised an organized plan to handle the issue. So operational or logistical matters were not unimportant, and they were necessary in the life of the church. And I think both our story here and Acts 6 give us sort of an ordering of priorities. What I mean is the need for this plan in Acts chapter 6, with food distribution to come about, it came up because there was an issue with the fellowship. Right? The operational or organizational need of the church was a need insofar as it helped the church remain devoted to the word fellowship and prayer, right? Our coffee and hospitality table helps us to fellowship together. When we were all talking before the service, many people had coffee in their hand, right? The sound equipment helps you all to hear me, hear the word preached, right? Childcare helps families to be able to hear the word and be able to focus. So these things that might seem unimportant or, or, or sort of logistical are very important because they help us in the word, fellowship, and prayer. So let's remain devoted to the apostles' teaching to fellowship and to prayer. Verses 43 to 45 say, And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. So there were no needy people among them. We see that church members were willingly giving up their possessions. The theme of no one being in need recurs throughout the New Testament. If you just flip a couple uh, chapters over in Acts chapter 4, verses 34 and 35, say the same thing. It says, There was no needy among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. So we see in the early church they are willingly giving up their possessions so that no one would be in need. And those verses I just read lead into Acts chapter 5. If you're familiar with Acts chapter 5, uh, it's Ananias and Sapphira. They sell a piece of land because everybody's doing this and giving it. They keep some for themselves, but they tell the church, yeah, we gave it all to the church. And Peter says, you're lying. You didn't. And verse 4 of chapter 5, this is Peter talking to Ananias, I think helps, can help us think about this. He says, while it the piece of land while it remained unsold did it not remain your own and after it was sold was it not at your disposal why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart you have not lied to man but to god see their giving of their possessions their having everything in common was done willingly it was not compulsory it wasn't sort of like this you know communism where you have like the the party head telling you what you have to sell and give no people whose hearts were changed longed to make sure no one in their community had need. They longed to willingly sell and give up their possessions. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, I'm not going to get too much into it, but Paul makes the exact same point about giving to the church. He doesn't give a nice sort of set like you must give this much or that much. He says give generously. And he tells them, sometimes you might be one in need, sometimes someone else is someone in need, but in the church we should be Uh, 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 fulfilling each other's needs, right? There shouldn't be any in need in the body. Today it might be you, tomorrow it might be someone else. Today it might be someone else, tomorrow it might be you. But Paul tells them, where you have an abundance, help those in need. So from verses 43 and 45, we see, let there be no needy people among us. Look for ways to supply the needs of others. The early church was unified, and those who had needs were provided for. Their devotion to the word, fellowship, and prayer resulted in action for those in need. There was humility. They had things in common, and they weren't insisting on their own way. There was joyful fellowship. When the Lord changed their hearts, it resulted in meeting the needs of others, even to the point of selling their possessions. Verses 46 and 47 expand on this. They say, And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So they were a people marked by generosity and by hospitality. We see these verses tell us that they were going to church consistently, right? We know Hebrews 10 says, don't neglect to meet together. We see this lived out here in the early church. They were attending the temple day by day. They wanted to go to church. And if the Lord has changed your heart, you should want to go and worship with God's people. There'll be times when you can't, right? Uh, You know, trips and, sorry, (laughs) trips and (laughs) um, all sorts of things uh, that might might, uh, providentially keep you from coming. But a sign of a heart changed by the gospel is a desire to worship with God's people. They were a community marked by hospitality and generosity. What was the result of this hospitality, love, and generosity? They had favor with all the people, it says. And guess what? The Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is what happens when the church looks like this. They grow. We shouldn't misunderstand. It isn't like uh, they just decided, hey, Christianity's great. Everybody loves it, right? That's not necessarily what it means when they had favor with everyone, of course. We're just a few months removed from them, crucifying Jesus. Flip over a few chapters, you're going to see Christians being martyred. So it isn't that everybody just thought, hey, Christianity's great. But it is true. It is true that when a community lives in such hospitality and generosity, in the way this text describes, it provides a beautiful witness to a watching world. There is something noticeably different, something noticeably uh, wonderful about such a community. So let's remember these facts. The church should be devoted to the word, to fellowship, and to prayer. Let us be a community in which there are no needy people among us. And let us be marked by hospitality and generosity. I pray that this would be us. Now, we spent a little bit looking at Acts 2, 42-47, and I want to take some time to talk about a few sort of basic church membership principles. Today, we're welcoming in three new members to our church, so I want to talk just a little bit about what that means and what it looks like. Again, much more could be said about this. I'm not claiming this to be exhaustive, but I think these are some important facets of church membership. So, Three things. Church membership is first a New Testament pattern. Or I think the New Testament pattern. Let's look at a few examples. In Matthew chapter 18, Jesus tells his followers how they should handle sin within their community. His words seem to make little sense unless there's a defined group who is the church. Matthew 18, 15 through 20 read like this. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if He does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven." For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. So when he says to tell it to the church, it implies that there is some defined group who is the church and that those members have some responsibility towards the wayward person. Again, you might not find explicit commands to formally join a church, but the implication is that people are identifying with a particular congregation in a particular city. There's also a similar instance in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, which we're not going to get into the details of, but in this particular case, Paul tells the church to actually expel someone from their uh, community, not because churches expect everyone to be perfect. In fact, no one in here is perfect. But in this particular case, someone had been continuing in sin and refusing to repent of that sin. So it makes sense that if you're living in unrepentant sin, church membership might be kind of scary because at least here, you know, in signing the church covenant, you're allowing other people to come into your life and try to help you grow, and that might mean repentance. But Paul ends that chapter by saying this in 1 Corinthians 5, 12, and 13. He says, for what what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Now, there's a lot that could be said here about this passage, and I won't go into all of it, but what I want to emphasize is that To expel someone from the group implies that there is some actual group. It would make no sense for Paul to tell them to formally dismiss someone if no one had joined the group in the first place. Reading through the New Testament, it's assumed that Christians will be part of a church. It's difficult to read the New Testament without seeing people join, the Greek word is ekklesia, right? Those called to gather, and that's the word we usually translate as church. So church membership, joining with a local body, is the New Testament pattern. Secondly, church membership is an avenue for, I could just say one another's, I don't know what, what, how else to put it, gifts and the fruit of the Spirit. A full sermon could be preached on all of these, so this will be an, definitely an imperfect overview. But in the Bible, we're ter- told to do a lot of things for one another. You know, there's love one another in many places, serve one another, carry one another's burdens, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgive one another, submit to one another. Count others higher than yourselves, encourage one another, pray for one another, be hospitable to one another. There are more, but those are just some. And most of these require you to actually be in the presence of other people. How can we fulfill these one another passages if we isolate ourselves? It's hard to encourage someone you don't know. Being hospitable implies that there are other people in your life to be hospitable to. And here's a tough one, forgiving one another. Well, you can only forgive one another if we're sinned against. So if we're going to practice forgiveness with one another, it implies that we're close enough that people could potentially sin against us. In many of the one another passages, the New Testament author is talking to the church, to Christians, saying this is how you should live with one another. And a similar idea goes with spiritual gifts. Romans 12, 3-8 uh, says this. It's, I, l- I love this passage. It says, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. So, this is what I sort of meant at the beginning when he said the the church needs you, right? We all have gifts that differ. He says, so use them. Right? We're members of the same body, but not all our body parts have the same function. Our body would be a little out of whack if it were just hands or just legs or just a bunch of torsos or something, right? It couldn't function. We had different gifts, and that's a blessing. If everyone here looked, acted, and had the same gifts as me, we would be a really, really messed up church. It would not be a good thing. But we had different gifts, and that is a blessing. We need these gifts in order to function. Thus, don't be discouraged if you see someone around you with a different gift— Are different gifts. Praise God that we have different gifts. Again, if we're all the same, that might seem nice and like it would be uh, unifying, but frankly, we wouldn't be able to function. And if you aren't a part of a body, right, if you're just sort of uh, trying to sort of live the Christian life alone, think of yourself as a a hand or a foot just on its own. can't really function unless it is part of a body. So if you're a member here at Renaissance, I encourage you, however god has gifted you to use that gift to build up the body and finally on this point church membership is a great avenue to grow in the fruit of the spirit galatians 5 22 and 23 right the fruit of the spirit is love joy peace patience kindness goodness gentleness faithfulness and self-control the kids are really into a book about it i want to get them as into the actual fruits of the spirit as in the book but we're working on that so these are things though that have to be lived out among others uh, a pastor in the States, I like his name's Jonathan Lehman, he gives a helpful analogy. If you were living alone on a desert island, you might think you have really great patience. You might think you are really awesome at self-control and you are really, really gentle. But as soon as other people get in the mix, your patience gets tested, right? I think this is, at, at least in part, not completely why the Bible so often talks about the church as family, right? We are a family. Works the same way in the biological family. I absolutely, unconditionally love my children. There is no condition whatsoever that they have to meet for me to love them. I love them so much, they test my patience. Many of you have seen them testing my gentleness <laughs> or my self-control or my patience, right? These things get tested. The answer is it for me to just run away from parenting and decide, uh, okay, you know what, This is can't do this, you know, I'd be way more self-controlled if, these, if I just didn't, didn't have this, this, this issue. No, my faults are not their fault. It just exposes the lack of self-control or lack of gentleness that are already in my heart. Life together, both in a biological family and a church family, requires humility. It requires us to understand that growth often comes when our shortcomings are exposed right we see oh man i am not as patient as i thought i could really grow in self-control the life of the church gives us a beautiful avenue for displaying the fruit of the spirit and for growing in these attributes so again i think church membership is a great avenue being part of a local church is a great way for uh, living out the one another's in scripture for living out uh, and, and using your spiritual gifts and for growing in the fruit of the spirit and the final thing here, I think church membership brings mutual accountability. Again, I want to highlight the word mutual. Yes, it should be underlined. Good. One could say mutual obligations or mutual benefits. Because at this, it's at this point you might be thinking, David, that's, that's all well and good. I can do all of those things. I don't really have to be a member of a church. I can devote myself to the word, fellowship, and prayer. I can love my neighbor. I can uh, help the needy. I can do all that. So why join a church? It will only get messy. This is where I want to highlight that at least here at Renaissance Church, membership will involve a commitment both from you and from the church. There are a couple of things here. There's commitments to one another. The membership covenant at Renaissance says the following. It starts like this. It says, in covenanting membership at Renaissance Church, I am committing to actively pursue discipleship so that I may grow in my relationship with Christ and become a gospel-centered believer who seeks to follow Jesus while equipping others to do the same in order to do this, and then it goes into many of the one another's and and biblical commands and such. In becoming a member, it's not like you're sort of pledging allegiance to Graham or myself or something like that. No, church membership is a way of saying, look, I'm a Christian, I want to join with other Christians, and I'm committing both to help them grow and the church is committing to help you grow. There's accountability in such a commitment, because honestly, we like to have a way out. We like to kind of be able to uh, get out of there if things get risky or things are tough. But again, the commitment is two-way. It's both members to the church and the church is committing to come alongside you and help you grow in Christ. Second, it brings accountability both to and from church leadership. Now, I know saying accountability to church leadership is something that can quickly rub people the wrong way. And frankly, given the plethora of wicked and abusive leaders out there, it's not surprising. We naturally don't like to be accountable to any authority, and mix in the fact that some have wielded authority wickedly, and you get an extreme resistance to such an idea. But in Hebrews 13, 17, it says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be a no advantage to you. Likewise, 1 Peter 5:5, 5, 5, as an exhortation to be subject to the elders. So as those who have to give an account to God, I'm speaking here, sort of Graham and I, right? We want to do what's best for your souls. And insofar as we're striving to do that, the Bible does give us authority. But that's not the only relationship of accountability here. As leaders, and Graham will be speaking more about leadership next week, so I don't want to stay on this too much, but we are accountable to the members of the church. What do I mean by that? Well, I just read Hebrews 13:17, which talks about obey your leaders. Well, right before that, in Hebrews, it says this, in 7 through 9. It says, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings. So the exhortation to obey your leaders comes just after saying, but don't be led away by strange teachings. So if your leaders are teaching you bad things, there's a responsibility and accountability to the members that we're not teaching strange things, Right? Similarly, I mentioned 1 Peter 5.5. Well, that exhortation to submit to the leadership comes right after commands to the leadership to uh, lead, not for shameful gain, not domineering over those in your charge, right? So the leaders are accountable for their actions. They're accountable to the members for their teaching and their life. Hebrews 13 is not the only place in the Bible where uh, a congregation is told to keep watch over the teaching in their church. And as I suspect, Graham, will talk about some next week, the qualifications for church leadership are almost exclusively things about someone's character. Yes, elders are supposed to teach, that is, they're be able to teach, that's in there. But otherwise, the list of qualifications in 1 Timothy and Titus have to do with the character of the leader. Character is more important for church leadership than personality or charisma or how big of a crowd someone can draw. So what am I getting at here? When we talk about accountability to and from leadership, this isn't some domineering relationship where if you join the church, you have to do whatever I say and, you know, something like that. No, those in leadership should be, they are, longing for your spiritual growth, and they are accountable to the members. Let me put it this way. I would hate to ever be the guy who falls back on things like, you know, church procedure and, like, bylaws and that sort of thing. But the reality is, Um, uh, one of the privileges of formal membership here is being able to vote on leaders and members. It's a way that the church can do these things. The members can do these things. They can keep an eye on the, the life and teaching of the leaders. So let's say I start preaching that Jesus isn't God, or the Bible isn't actually, you know, something you should really listen to, or you can be saved by your works, or let's say I commit some disqualifying sin, adultery, I rob a bank, I do something horrible, I don't know. Again not plan- not doing any of those things or plan to do any of those. But if that happened, right, you can and you should be upset. You might think I should be kicked out of here. And you can tell me about those things, complain about those things, but ultimately when all is said and done, it's those who have covenanted in membership together here who have the responsibility and the, uh, the, the authority to vote me out, if that were the case. There is a special level of accountability to those who have made the commitment here to membership. So I'm not saying, not saying at all that if you're not a formal member that I won't listen to questions, concerns, I want to be responsive. Again, our heart's desire is for you to grow and be more like Christ. I'm simply trying to highlight that there is, uh, within the commitment of membership, a special responsibility that keeps the leaders accountable. So this is why I wanted to highlight the word mutual. These relationships of accountability within the church Go in each direction. The members are committing to the church. The church is committing to help the members. Members are uh, uh, accountable to leadership, and leadership is accountable to the members. So again, it's not any of this like, you know, you join and, you know, people get to tell you what to do. Although, if you're in sin, there will be hopefully people who uh, 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 call you to repentance. So we like to, in our culture, right, we like to have a way out. We don't like to be accountable to others. And committing to church membership is a way to grow and help others grow. So again, church membership is a New Testament pattern. It gives us an opportunity to uh, live out these one another's, to live out our spiritual gifts, and to grow in the fruits of the Spirit. And uh, it brings mutual accountability both to the church and from the church. So for the last few minutes, I want to give a reminder of what this is all about. Why do we gather? Why do we commit to one another? Remember, we want to be a people devoted to the word, to fellowship, and to prayer. From these things, other things will follow. Evangelism, discipleship, missions, church planning, growth. Again, our three sermons are not an exhaustive list of what a healthy church is. And I, uh, but I just want to spend a moment and say what a blessing it's been to be able to join Renaissance. You know, I went to college at a Christian school, so you might think, oh, everybody there was this, like, really great Christian who attended church and, no, not at all. Uh, So they'd have these things, it's like church fairs on the dorm, where you get there and some upperclassman tells you about their church and tries to, like, convince you to come to their church. And I'm not trying to dog on this practice too much, but it just got kind of ridiculous. Every church basically had its adjective. So it was like, this is the church where everybody likes to hunt. This is the church where everybody has a military background. This is the church where all the young, hip people go. This is the church where we have the mature saints, a.k.a. a lot of old folks. This is the church where everybody likes to, is a biker or whatever. So it just became a little bit outrageous. And I remember thinking, like, it doesn't take the gospel to bring those people together. Like, people who all like the same things are going to come together anyway. Now, it's not to say that people who have similarities can't go to church together church we came from in North Carolina for most of its history was the only church in the community, and everybody there had the same background, the same everything, and it was the only place they could go. So it's not inherently bad. But it is true, again, that it doesn't take the gospel to bring people who like the same things, come from the same background together. So I want to ask, what brings us together? As I look around the room, I see people from many backgrounds. I see people from all over the globe. I see singles. I see families. I see people who run in very different circles. I see people who were it not for a renaissance I probably would have never met or known about. So why do we gather? It isn't shared culture. We don't all have the same shared background or culture. It isn't shared hobbies. It isn't shared jobs. No, we come together because our lives have been changed by Jesus Christ. We come together. We commit ourselves to one another. We commit ourselves to helping one another grow in Christ, even when it's hard, because we've been mesmerized by a gracious king who came to earth and redeemed us. When I walk through these doors on Sunday mornings, I'm reminded that after whatever trials the previous week has thrown at me, I'm not walking the Christian life by myself. I have a family, brothers and sisters in Christ, who have committed themselves to help me grow as I've committed myself to helping them grow. Brothers and sisters for whom I pray each week and I ask the Lord to work in their life. I'm thankful for this church, and I'm thankful today to welcome in new members. Today, if you're with us and you've never put your faith in Christ, I want to encourage you to look to Jesus. The community, the fellowship, the closeness, it doesn't just come out of thin air. What we've been talking about, what we saw here in Acts, it doesn't just come from nothing. There's a shared love of Christ among us, and if you don't know Jesus, you are still in your sins and in need of a Savior. Look to Jesus who lived a perfect life and died a death you and I deserved, and he paid the penalty for your sin. He then rose from the grave, defeating sin and death. I encourage you today to repent of your sin and trust in him. I, or Graham, or I know many others would love to talk to you more about this, if you want to know more. And church, as we have new members coming in today, let's rejoice. Let us remember these essentials. Let us be people devoted to the word, to fellowship, and to prayer. Let's use our gifts for the building up of the body. Let's not shy away from encouraging one another, being hospitable to one another. I pray that that would be us today. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to the sermon from Renaissance Church. If you have any questions about the sermon or would like to know more, please feel free to contact us by email at renaissance.mtl at gmail.com or reach out to us on social media. It's our passion to love Jesus, love each other, and love our world.